but but I gotta say this, Shaheen, you have one of the most unique names I think I've ever encountered in terms of meeting great human beings, man. What's up with that? What's, what's the, you got a cool story for your name in the background? I think it's pretty fascinating. Iranian. So I was born okay. in Iran. Yeah. During the 1970s, the mid 1970s, and my family came here. So it, it's, it's actually funny because when we came here to this country, for some reason, most Americans were unable to pronounce two syllable names. I, I don't ask me why. So I was like, what's your name? I'd be like, Shaheen. I'd say Shaheen. They'd be like, we're just going to call you Shah or Sean. And, and that's how it stuck. So all these Iranians moving here. I'm in Los Angeles. I know where, where, where are you at? Vegas, right Vegas. across the okay, way, my yeah. friend. Yep. Same thing. So lots of Persians, lots of Iranians. So they all changed their names because I guess the people around them couldn't pronounce their name. So if your name was like Farhad, they couldn't say two syllables. So they'd be like, oh, Fred, I got Fred. Fred, got it. Yeah, yeah. That's too funny, man. I yeah. love it. So, so, so li life in the United States post being in Iran, um, you know, was that a huge cultural shock for you as you transitioned from, you know, that part of the world to this part of the world, even in your youth? Hell um, yeah. Hell yeah. Aware? Look, I came from the third world. Right. Ron in the 1970s was undergoing major changes. It was under, uh, I guess, arguably what some people would say was a, a dictator, probably was a dictator. He was a king. He was a monarch. And he was big on modernization. So he was trying to modernize the country as quickly as possible. And there was always in that part of the world uh, arguments, mainly over oil and resources. And, you know, it, it was a difficult time, but he was overthrown. Uh, theocrats, which were like religious people, took over the country. And my family, being Persian Jews, some of the oldest Jews in, in history are the Iranian Jews, the Persian Jews, uh, decided, hey, man, you know, like, what if something really bad happens again? So let's, let's bail and give our kids some opportunity because all the opportunities drying up here. Um, so they left in search of opportunity with basically the clothes on our backs. And we moved to Germany because you couldn't move to the United States. And then from Germany, we moved to the United to the United States. And in Iran, things are very safe for kids. I would argue safer than it is here. You know, politically, it might be less stable. But as far as a great country to grow up in, it was fantastic for me as a, as a kid. And I was king of the heat. And then I get here to this country. I'm five years old. I don't speak English. I'm dropped in a public school in the 1980s during the Reagan era. And I learned quickly that you could, in fact, get your ass kicked multiple times in a day. I didn't realize that until it started happening to me. And I was like, oh, shit. Oh, oh, <laughs> everywhere I looked, there was an ass, ass kicking coming for me. So it makes you tough pretty quick. I got pretty gritty, pretty scrappy. You know, I, I knew how to handle myself in Iran, but when I got here, I was like, oh shit, every day is going to be a fight. Let's go to, let's go to fucking war. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and that's what it was every day became survival for me until one day I woke up and I was in my teens and I was like, this is fucking bullshit, man. Like I can't keep doing this. I, you know, the, the path that's laid out for me, that trajectory is not the path I want to go. It's fucking filled with stuff that I don't want, nor do I want to do. So there's mm. got to be a better way sure. to find my fame and fortune. And that's, that's what set me off on my journey. 
I like that. You said a couple of things there, right? At the end, at the tail side of that, that, that caught my attention. One, to be able to identify, you know, sort of that you didn't want something so young is, is, is a pretty good, keen sense of awareness. By the way, you, you um, and again, I don't know to what detail you have followed maybe this gentleman, but he, his story is very similar. Patrick Bed David, who runs mm-hmm. Valuetainment, he's got the Iran story from there. Yeah, was involved in the war, fled as refugees, and then family got out to come over here, and I think landed in LA as well. I mean, it's almost identical, right? So, yeah. um, to the to the point that you said you started figuring out that you didn't want that. What do you think that was more like an innate thing, or that because of some of the maybe the war stories of life, you were able to start pinpointing something? Because I'm always curious, does somebody have a gift? There's always like that sixth sense in their life that they realize in hindsight that they had, or was it just like you were tired of this thing that was happening and you were ready to go find, which the second part of this was that fame and fortune. Did you want fame and fortune? Did you work towards that? Was that embedded into you? So I know it's kind of a loaded, loaded thing there, but not trying to load it, but, but trying to dictate the the decision-making process in there that you come along with to get you sort of out of that stress place and, and chart forward. Yeah, super question. So I'm a big fan of Valuetainment, Patrick Bet David. I think he's doing a lot of mafia stuff now. He's <laughs> yeah. interviewing mafia guys, which is super, super interesting. I think that's his yeah. thing. It's probably his his passion project. And I'm I'm a fan of him. He's a little bit younger than me, Pat's, I think in his early 40s. I'm 46. Yep. No way. Um, yeah. So I, I migrated uh, to the United States in 79. So I think maybe he, he came a little bit after me, probably, I'm guessing. But in, in any event, I'll tell you what happened. My folks, my dad, you know, we moved here. I had literally no money. My dad was working at a pizza shop. He was working at a dry cleaners, which he ended up working out for 30 years. And I watched what was going on around me. We moved to a suburb of Los Angeles called Pacific Palisades, which in that time was very hippie. It was not up and coming. And once we moved in, in the early eighties, the neighborhood started coming up. It was like, all of a sudden there was like fancy cars and people eating at restaurants and those kinds of things. I was like, I hadn't eaten at a fucking restaurant until I was 15. I remember my buddy, cause there was all these rich kids all around me and we wouldn't eat out we go home. My mom would make like a burger. She'd cut it in half. My brother would get half. I'd get half. And that was dinner, lunch, and, and breakfast, right? That's yeah. just like the way things were. She'd make us Persian food. And, and that was the way we lived. And we were solidly poor. And I remember growing up in this neighborhood where all the houses started popping up, rich people started moving in and going to a restaurant with a buddy of mine going, well, wait a second. I can look at this menu and I can order a burger and the fries. And this guy's going to bring it for me right here. Explain to me that again. I don't fucking believe you. And that's, that's literally what it was like. And then I started looking around me and I saw, man, this guy's got like a fancy car and this guy's got this big house and this like beautiful wife and like all this like stuff. I was like, I want that stuff. How do I get that Mm. stuff? So I went home to my parents and I said, look, I want to be rich. I want to get all that stuff. How do you get all that stuff? And they had a very clear answer for me. It was like, well, you become a doctor or a lawyer and you can get anything you want. Look at Mr. Shamzar across the street. He's very rich. He's a doctor. And I was like, fuck, okay, well, that's what I'll do. I'll become a doctor. That's easy enough. Yep. I was like, How long does that take? They're like, well, eight years of school, you know, four more years for a specialty. You get in debt half a million bucks. And then by the time you're bald and fat and don't have any fucking friends left, 
you know, you can, you can maybe say that you're a doctor, you get a bank loan to buy the house, the bank owns your house, the bank owns your fucking car, the bank owns your, your, your wife. And then, you know, the whole, everything around you is owned by somebody else and you have no control over your time. You leave at 5 a.m. in the morning, you're working for somebody else, you come home at 8 p.m. and that's the best life you can have. Hope that works for you. It's like, hell no, I'm not going to do that. So I decided that I was going to read up. And fortunately, I was really interested in reading. And I read books like Think and Grow Rich. I read Bruce Lee's Davji Kundo, where he talked about Eastern philosophy. I read Alan Watts. I read all these all-time amazing guys who wrote about success and Eastern philosophy, and that there's a world out there that you can achieve regardless of who you are. And I don't know if it was bullshit or not bullshit, but I took it as the way that I wanted to form my reality. I decided that I wasn't gonna do what everybody else wanted me to do. So I signed out, I signed out. I said, you know, I'm signing out, took my backpack and I bailed. I cut ties with my family, didn't really have many friends in those days anyway. And I just took off, I went, I slept on the beach, I slept in empty buildings. I hung out at the local community college, even though I wasn't enrolled, I would, um, sneak into the occasional class, hang out in the, in the coffee room or the uh, uh, computer lab at the time, and just try to fucking figure out what I was going to do. And I was fortunate enough, many, to run into a dude who agreed to become a mentor of mine. Mm. And I didn't know who this man was, but his name was Edward Lawson. And as it turns out, he was a huge figure in civil rights. And he landed some pretty important cases where he sued the government himself by himself all the way up to the Supreme Court. And he became like a father figure to me and guided me through most of the beginning of my career. And I remember thinking to myself, man, you know, like I got to start doing something. He introduced me to the electronic music scene at the time. He was a big dancer, believe it or not. Oh, dude, you and I can go on a side conversation about that. That yeah. whole subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The history, by the way. I'm mean, still a fan of But anyway, I digress. I had to jump in there to make sure I didn't lose I that love opportunity. That. To talk how, about how old are you, Manny? 35. 35. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah so yeah, I got about yeah. 11 years on you. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, no. Uh, you know, uh, Pasquale Rotea, the guy that um, <laughs> Live Nation, he was my neighbor. And no he kidding. started out going to my raves, believe it or not. That I was doing. Oh, yeah. you're opening up a whole nother can of worms. Yeah. I don't even know if we want to go this he direction. Li he, but... li he lived a few houses down from me. Um, uh, Stefan Gordy, who's also known as Red Foo, LMFAO, also yeah. went to my school. Um, you know, we had a lot of great people that year who, uh, Will I Am with the Black Eyed Peas was my classmate. So we mm. had a lot of, yeah, a lot of people in my, in my class ended up doing very well and becoming people of note. But I decided, you know, I was going to check out this electronic music scene. I didn't have a place to live. What I would do is they would have, um, the all these buildings it was this building boom in los angeles in the time and there was all these empty buildings that were under construction luxury buildings and i managed to somehow get the keys to the lock boxes and i could sneak in at night sleep there in this like luxury apartment that's under construction clean all my stuff up my sleeping bag and everything and be out by the mornings and that's where i would sleep and when the rave scene happened i was like oh cool this is another place for me to sleep i would go there behind the speakers is very quiet and it's like this gentle vibration in front is very loud behind the speakers very quiet nobody ever checked behind the speakers so i would go there and i would crash behind the speakers 
And I remembered Manny waking up one day and I was in the club. The club was still going on. It was like four or five in the morning. And I realized that I needed to do something. And I walked around and I was like, okay, so where's the money? It's got to be the promoters. The club promoters got to be the ones that are making the money. Nope. Those guys were always broke ass motherfuckers. They'd be, you know, running all the time. They'd be at the first part of the club and then they'd bail. So they didn't have to pay everybody. The DJs would never get paid. So it wasn't the musicians. The people who owned the venues didn't get paid because they were usually break-ins. People would break into these old warehouses. They would be owned by the diddly diddly dough corporation. Nobody would ever care. So who was making the money in those days? Can you take a guess? Um, in those days, the, my God, the providers of the alcohol or the drugs. Close. Yes, correct. Yeah, the the drug was, providers. That's a nice way. That, that's, that's a very nice way to yeah. put it, Manny. The yeah. drug providers. <laughs> you make it sound like healthcare providers. I like yeah, that. Uh, yeah. You're by the good, way, you're... I, I, by the way, I, you know, I, I, I've sold my fair share of drugs here in Vegas back in my my time frame of height, heightened EDM scene running these streets right here in Vegas. Oh wow! Um, you know, so I, I I say that softly with oh. the whole drug. I can't even tell you the amount of drugs over that you know ten year <laughs> period from twenty to thirty post pre sobriety that. Man, man, trust me, I know that scene inside and out, man. We got to get together at some point and just to hash out some stories. <laughs> but, yeah, but, I like but, but I love awesome. it though. Yeah, yeah. So this is yeah. fantastic. So I, and for your for your safety, I will say allegedly. He's saying allegedly he has done that. But <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. With that said, um, so I was like, all right, cool. Well, let me do this then. So that's great. Let me sell drugs. I mean, this these guys have this guy's got a Porsche. He's got a beautiful blonde with all the everything. And like, you know, he's got all the jewelry. Like, yes, I want that. How do I get that? And then I, I, I looked back to my adolescence after we moved here from Iran. And I remember my forays into crime during my adolescence, me and some other misfit kids. And by the way, I write about this in my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Cult, which just dropped. So anybody yep. who's listening, gonna, check us out. It. on definitely going to get to all that fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. Check us out. So. Um, I write about this where, you know, we were a bunch of like rejects and misfits and kids that like nobody liked. And we started a little miniature crime ring where we would go into these little liquor stores. And at the time I had a little Greek kid who was my buddy and he was short. I don't know what you call him now, but he was, let's say a little person or uh, I don't know, a small American. We'll use the M word. Yeah, Whatever yeah. you want to call them. I'm not going to yeah, say yeah. midget. Okay. I don't right, want to right, offend right. anybody. I don't think you're supposed to say midget <laughs> anymore. So, but he was, so he was a short guy. He would go under the sensors. So he would wear baggy clothes. We would cause a distraction to the person at the, at the register, probably very poorly. And he would grab as many nudie magazines as he could get hustlers, penthouses, whatever he, all the titty magazines. He would take all the little bottles of liquor, stick them in there, cigarettes, glue, anything that we, we could we could we could flip and then we would take that to school and we would we would flip it and we made a lot of money but the incredible thing is we would always fucking get caught like detention was our second home like we just lived like it was just expected it was like the the fifth period of you know it was like math science detention for us and so i looked back at those times and i thought dude we're fucking really bad at crime and me particularly terrible at crime I am not going to be one of those American greed people where I'm going to be like, I suck at crime. What's the next thing I'm going to do? More crime. Yeah, right. I decided crime wasn't for me, which took the equation of becoming an illegal drug dealer out. 
But then I was hit with a revelation. I thought, what if we could do this stuff naturally? I, I love herbs. I always had an interest in herbalism. My grandfather was an herbalist. And I thought, well, what if we could create a version of the most popular drug at that time, which the supply, by the way, had completely dried out. There was no real ecstasy on the streets at some point in the 90s because they had blocked the entry. They, it was all being produced in the UK and Holland, and they stopped it from coming into the country. Nobody here really knew how to make it. Not many people did. And the drug dealers were really sad. The people at the parties were really sad. So my thought was, hey, what if I create a legal and safe version of it that I could offer up and sell legally? I could make millions. And I didn't get the memo that it was impossible. Um, or I'm sure a lot of people told me that, but I didn't listen. I managed to get myself a girlfriend at the time, even though I was dead broke. I managed to convince her to let me sneak into her kitchen when her dad was out and to cook it up in her kitchen using herbs and natural ingredients. I didn't have enough money to buy the capsule machine. So we would roll them up into balls and try to make them as close as, as capsules or tablet shape as possible, put them into little baggies. And one day we tried them on all kinds of people. And one day we found out it worked really well. We had a formula that fucking worked. It worked amazing. And people got really nice feelings off of it. And I decided to take it into a club. So I walked into a, 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 one of these raves one night and I walked up to the most scary drug dealer at that time. Now, mind you, back in the 90s, having tattoos on your face and neck was not a normal thing. Now, I think it's much more socially accepted. But back then, I think that was just short of you know, being a mass murderer and having the three tiers here for each person you killed, having tattoos on. So this guy had tattoos on his face and his neck. And he was hanging out there. He had the you know gold teeth or whatever. And I walked up to him and he's like, what do you need, man? And I was like, well, oh, no, I don't need anything. I want to want you to sell my pills. And he said, fuck off, kid. What are you talking? Are you a cop? You know, are you wearing a wire? Was he, you know, he was very paranoid and very aggressive. And I knew many in that moment that I had to burn my ships. That either I had to listen to my negative self-talk and be like, you're a fucking pussy, pack your shit up and go home, go back home. You've made a mistake. You're going to die tonight. This man will kill you and probably eat you. He is a absolute 100% criminal. You, you are not in the right. Or to do what Steve Jobs called, put a dent in the universe and mm. to create what, he, what Walter Isaacson said was... Steve Jobs' reality distortion field. Create a reality distortion field. Get this drug dealer to sell herbs, vitamins, in fact. So I wouldn't leave. And I just stood there making my case, pretending like this man wasn't just about to strangle me in front of the entire club. And just then, two partygoers walked up to him. And they were asking him for ecstasy. And in a moment where his eyes met mine, I realized, and he realized more importantly, that I wasn't leaving and I wasn't backing down. He was going to have to fucking kill me. And so he motioned over to me to hand him the bags. I handed him the baggie. He said, hand me the entire backpack. I handed him the entire backpack filled with pills. He handed it to them. He took the cash and motioned to me to disappear. I disappeared for a couple hours, came back. People were dancing. The party was going off. It was one of those crazy nights. I looked at the people who bought the pills from him. They were having the time of their life, like dancing up and down with the whistle and the glow sticks and all the fucking stuff, right? The 90s. 
And the guy motioned for me to come to him. His little bodyguards moved away. And by little, I mean big freaking Samoan dudes. And I walked over there. And this was one of those guys where usually you can read people, but he didn't have very many facial gestures. He just had like that. And that was it. Like he, he had one, one facial expression, which was, I'm going to kill you. And that yeah, was yeah. it. That was right. it. And I was sure I was going to die. I was, I had all my apologies worked out. I said, dude, I'm so sorry. Just let me live for the night. I had all that stuff. And he just leans over to me and there's a moment of silence. Now, most people are very uncomfortable with silence. And I was pretty much biting my tongue not to start making excuses. And he looks at me stone cold in the eyes and says, kid, how soon can you get me more? And that was it. It was on. We went from one guy to 100 guys to 1,000 guys to 10,000 guys. Then we were at Tower Records, Warehouse Records. We were at all the uh, adult stores. Larry Flint became one of my biggest customers selling it into all the sex shops across the country. We were selling it in all the raves. We went on tour with Lollapalooza. Now, mind you, six months before, I was sleeping in abandoned buildings. I was sleeping on the beach and waking up and going and getting a cup of tea and like, you know, just surviving. And we became one of the biggest supplement companies of all time until I'm still in my teens. Wow. I walk into my office wow. at this point. I have 200 employees. Everybody in Venice Beach is working for me. If you had a heartbeat or could fog up a mirror, I probably would hire you. And I get into my office. And in those days, I was sleeping at the office whenever I could just because I wanted to work 22 of 24 hours of the day if I could. I just wanted to continue the success growing. And many, the news broke that we had broken a billion dollars in revenue. Wow. Wow. This is pre-internet, pre-social media pre-mobile phones, pre-iPhone, pre-all this stuff. A billion dollars before Silicon Valley had the big explosion, before any of these, before anybody was making a billion dollars, we broke a billion dollars in revenue. I'm a teenager. I dropped out of school. I was sleeping in an abandoned building six months before, and now this happened. And I remember looking at my secretary at the time, and yes, we had secretaries back then, and having an incredible panic attack, thinking to myself, holy fuck, I don't know how much a billion dollars is. Not theoretically. Right. In fact, I didn't know how much money a billion was. So I had to look it up because they were telling me CNN is on its way. Sam Donaldson with Nightline wants to interview you today. He's in the limo outside. Uh, Montel Williams just sent uh, tickets for you to come to the show in New York. Everybody wanted me on. And it led to a crazy ride. And I write about it in the book. You know, the mob got involved. The Yakuza, the Japanese mafia wanted to take over the company. There were a lot of interesting times that were had in those days. A lot of private jets, flying around with celebrities, crazy wild parties, and making a lot of money and burning a lot of money and sometimes literally burning money. And, and a, a, off of a legal substitute for that high, and that excitement that one wants in the club, right? That's right. We were completely legal and it drove the authorities insane. They didn't have oh, a place to put us. They didn't know what to do with me. They were like, well, fuck, if it's a drug, then DEA. If it's, you know, if it's this, then we'll take it to this department. If it's this evasion, we'll do this department. But they didn't have any of that. 
Everything so, we were doing was legal. It was just unprecedented. With, with, with like scaling up, I guess, because you could read a thousand business books and you could cover probably everything that you went through in those thousand books. When, when you had to produce more, did you shift from, hey, I've got a countertop in the kitchen to building facilities? Like, was this a true business ascension type of a deal yeah. that you got forced into and your 200 employees in Venice are, are you starting to drive process and system? And that's part of the playbook that becomes the company infrastructure that helps this thing get to a billion. Or was this like, dude, you're Pablo Escobar in, 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 in Colombia and you're moving it in the streets and the gutters and the submarines type of thing, man. It's so like, what was the nature of that? So a little bit of both, but <laughs> more inch. Oh yeah. I would fly all over the country with briefcases filled with pills, even in countries where it was illegal. That was the thing that we did in those days. But Unbelievable. with that, with that said, I had no systems. I had one system and I write about it in my book and I'm going to tell you about that. And it was the system that ran everything in those days. I didn't understand business systems. And now, you know, I teach people how to make money on Amazon. I've got an Amazon right. course. And through all that stuff that I do now, I teach people how to build systems, how to build strategies and build businesses that last the test of time. But back then I didn't have any of that. I had one system that was if you had suicide margins, what I call suicide margins, and were able to make an insane amount of money in the stupidest ways of ways possible ever, then you could pretty much buy yourself out of any problem that was created as a result of it. Employees stealing product, make more money. Lawyers fuck up, make more money. Get lawsuits, make more money. Making more money solves all the problems in business if you can make enough of it. There isn't a, a problem around, nah, I should, shouldn't say that. Most problems can be solved with money. So now you got to remember, Manny, it was costing me 25 cents COGS, complete cost of goods, out the door, one unit of our product. And by the way, I remember the dealer coming up to me going, you know, when those party goers were asking for it, he was like, what do you call this stuff, man? And I just remember I was like, oh shit, here's another moment. Uh, herbal ecstasy. I said herbal ecstasy. And he was like, it's herbal ecstasy. Like, All right. That's how we named it. But I remember we were making it for 25 cents a unit. We were selling it for $20 a unit. Wow. Most of our business was cash, green cash in hand. Most of it was direct meaning we would be at a show, we would have people come to our stores or our offices. We had stores all over the country. We had a flagship store on Melrose Avenue that was called the Ecstasy Store. People would come in, they would pay $20 in cash, they would get a packet that cost us 25 cents. We were fucking printing money, dude. Wow. We were printing it. And as quickly as we could produce these things, we were selling it. So yeah, initially it started out in my kitchen, then I found a dude in Chinatown who was making, he had a small production line. You know, he could maybe make a few hundred bottles a day or a few hundred packs a day. And then we contacted major manufacturers. And it just so happened that Southern California was the hub of supplement manufacturing in those days. So it was Southern California and the East Coast. And so what we did was we set up factories. 
in Southern California. We set up factories on the East Coast, and then we were in 32 countries. So every country where our product was going to be sold, we set up a little production facility, a little contract manufacturing facility to produce our pills. And that way, if they ever shut down one of our factories, we always had multiple from all over the place, which was one of the reasons why it was so difficult for them to shut us down at any given time. They tried. They really yeah, tried. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they couldn't shut us down as easily as they thought. I got some, I got some deep questions because yeah, I, I just, everything you're saying is, is so fantastic. And I want to be able to trans, transfer the knowledge to more modern day today, which obviously you've made tremendous shifts um, from, from that time frame to today. And I do want to talk about your book and, you know, Amazon of what you're doing today. But I think, I think the biggest benefit for anybody that listens, and sometimes I take a selfish approach because I'm always curious about these things too, is, you know, at that time, it sounds like you hit it spot on right at the right time where, where things were sort of evolving in that scene. You didn't have access to the supply of the actual ecstasy was no longer there. And so I'm, I'm, I'm triangulating this from like a business standpoint where people that in modern day are, are attempting to jump into business. There's a couple of elements that are similar in nature to have a big hit like that, a big home run, right? Like good timing, for example. Um, plus, plus the less regulated infrastructure kind of of maybe the business and then the hub being there in SoCal. So if today's entrepreneur is, is attempting to jump into business, how much of that is transferable to today uh, uh, in the sense that how it worked for you in the 90s, having that big instant hit in your teens to make a billion dollars, you know, if you're not Zuckerberg building Facebook, how realistic is that today in today's day and age for someone to have that same thought? I get, I get the idea. We buy into the idea and the theory a lot, but the actuality of it um, has to have a couple things really sort of connect at the same time to have that massive success. You agree or disagree? Yes and no. So Please let me share. tell you, let yeah. me tell you, let me tell you what it is. Like real estate, real estate is a good example. You know, what I teach, particularly to my students now, is foundational thinking. We teach that you need to have multiple streams of revenue no matter what you're doing. And one of those streams should be real estate that we always talk about. And we could talk about this towards the end if you want to. But with real estate, it doesn't matter where the market is you can always find an opportunity. There's people who get rich in every market. Market's hot. There's people making money flipping. Sure, they might be holding the hot potato, but if they know what they're doing, they'll make enough money and the last hot potato they hold or get stuck with, you know, balances out with all the wins that they had before that. In general, in life, the sum total of your winnings just has to exceed by a good margin the sum total of your losses. So you can have one big win and a lot of little losses and they get canceled out. You can have a lot of little wins and one big loss and it can get canceled out. Hmm. So in very general terms, that's the way it is. The other thing that I would mention is that there is always an opportunity for you to succeed, but you have to be in the flow. And by that, there, there's a great book by this guy, Chikset Mihai. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. It's always a very difficult name called Flow. And he talks about being in the flow state. Uh, Stephen Kotner in his book, Art of the Impossible or The Rise of Superman, talks about 
how these extreme athletes get into these flow states where they slow down time and they're just there. And I look back to my time back in the 90s when I had this astronomical success, literally hundreds of millions of dollars floating around on yachts with supermodels and, you know, the, the lifestyles that you see on Instagram, the bullshit ones where it's like, I got a Lambo, <laughs> check out all my shit, right? Like the private jet. And you realize the dude paid 150 bucks to get a picture in a private jet set. Right. And the girls are all hired models and, you know, it's all, it's all rented lifestyle. It's all bullshit. Yeah. Like I lived that fucking life in the nineties because I had that, that kind of uh, that kind of wealth back in those days. And the interesting part about that is when you succeed and when people succeed, they're in the flow and you have to be able to get yourself in a flow state to have all your ducks in a row. And look, you can't be in a flow state if you're fucking selling your hours, you can't be in a flow state if you're struggling to make ends meet, if you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, if you don't know if you're going to get your baby's diapers this week or not, if you can't take your girl out for a meal because you broke all the time, it's not going to work. Mm. You will not be in a flow state. So the mm -hmm. first step for anybody is stabilization. Once you get stabilized, then you have to figure out how to optimize and get yourself into a flow state. In those days, remember, I came from nothing. I had nothing to lose. And every day for me was, I didn't need much. So my requirements were, were very small. For me to be comfortable was, I, I had nothing. I was sleeping yeah, in an yeah. empty building, eating relish and ketchup from a hot dog stand. And I was fucking fine. It, yep. was, okay. it, was, it was okay. And then I got stable. I made a little bit of money. And then I started focusing on this optimization part, which is how do you get into the flow? And I realized that there were a few things that got me in that flow state. And once I, I got into that flow state, it was like I couldn't fucking keep deals from coming to me. Everywhere I turned, there was a deal coming at me. There was a, a talk show that they wanted me to be on. There was a, a million dollar deal. I talk about uh, one time where I fell asleep on the, I, I talk about it in my book. Um, where I was in, in, in the office, I fell asleep in my office the, the week before I, I just came in in a crazy fit. And I was like, furniture is fucking last year. We're done with furniture. I'm going to take out all the fucking furniture. I ordered these custom floor meditation chairs. And I said, everybody's sitting on the fucking floor. That's it. And we're, we're not going to have fucking tables. This is going to be a revolutionary fucking, a terrible idea. People hated me for it, but <laughs> I'd fallen asleep on one of these like uh, beanbag things on the floor. Woke up. There was a pile of papers. I had this beautiful white pit bull, albino pit bull, sweetheart of a dog. She knocked over the stack of papers and I was like, fuck, I was waking up in the office. I was like, shit, all my meetings are coming in. I grabbed the, the first piece of paper that she had bitten through and it was a check for a million dollars. It was a fucking check for a million dollars. And it was like a month old and it was sitting there and I just hadn't fucking cashed it. They've gotten their product or whatever. And I just hadn't cashed. I was sitting. That was how much money we had flowing around. There was a check for a million dollars and I just threw it right back on the pile. I think it took me months to even get to it because it was so low on my list of priorities. My priorities at that time was exactly what I said, creating an impact. And I was so in the flow that the million dollars didn't matter. There was more millions everywhere else. And I would just go out there. So the key is, if you can get into that flow, there's nothing that you can't do. Finding out how you get into that flow in that sweet spot, that's the tricky part.
So these are great generalities. And again, you know, people like Csikszentmihalyi and uh, Stephen Kotner have written great books on flow state. But once you get to know yourself and you can get into this, the state where you have optimal performance and you have absolute flow and you know how to be at the right place at the right time. And there's an art to it. There's an art. We call it synchronicity. I write about it in my book. But if you can get into that, that flow, deals will come to you. The art of making money is not about getting out there and pushing your shit down somebody's throat. That's bullshit. That's what you see on TV. That's what these guys say. Oh, you say these lines and somebody will buy it from you. You say this line, you can pick up 10 girls. It's all bullshit. The art of making money is about what Caldini, Professor Caldini in his book, Presuasion, he talks about it. He calls it presuasion. It's about setting it up so those opportunities come to you. And when you hit that flow, you hit those targets and stuff starts happening around you. And I can't explain it. And I know people that are billionaires. I know millionaires. I know a couple billionaires. And it, I sit down with them all the time. We have dinner, we have drinks. And I'm, I'm constantly asking them, like, how do you know when you're in that state? And they can't explain it. They can't explain why one guy, like one guy I know is a real estate guy, and he's making hundreds of millions of dollars. And the guy who went to, to school with him, the exact same upbringing, same neighborhood, same stuff. And that guy's, you know, he's banking 150 grand a year while my buddy's making hundreds of millions. What's the difference? My buddy knows how to get into the flow state. He knows how to optimize and then go after those opportunities. And not only that, he's able to minimize the noise so he can see clearly. And I think those things are the things that, that help you build that roadmap. And then you have to think to yourself, is what I'm doing solving an important enough problem? A guy who's on my book, uh, Jay Samet, wrote this book, Disrupt You, and he wrote a new book called Future Proofing You. And he talks about that. He talks about, oh, you got Jay's book? Oh, love it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. oh, Jay, love it, love it, Jay's love it. Good, Jay's, Jay's a, a good yeah. friend of mine. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, are you solving a big enough problem? Are you thinking big enough? Because there's lots of problems out there to be solved. So to answer your question a very long about fucking Shaheen goes on a rant way, the answer is, yeah, you just got to find that problem. We just had, you know, we're just going through COVID. I, I thought we'd fucking be out of COVID, but we're still sure. in COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're thinking, well, it was very unfortunate and very sad. And a lot of people lost lives and a lot of people got sick and it was a tragedy. But a lot of people also fucking got rich. A lot of people continue to get rich. Amazon had the best years ever in history. As, as being an Amazon seller and somebody who's expert in Amazon, I can vouch for that. All our Amazon companies went gangbusters during this time. So even in the hardest of times, you can succeed just if you're in this flow state. And that's what I talk about in my book. And I give a, a path and a three-part system for how you can get into that flow state and capitalize on those opportunities when you get there. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there, again, I, I want to pull back the curtain on a few of those things. By the way, every your little rant that you just mentioned about you going on, every piece of it, every stage of it, every milestone that we hit had value in it. So don't worry about that, man. Go ahead. Please, okay, more rants. Good, yeah, because yeah. I can um, go on, man. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're, we're gonna do like a little role play here because I'm in this, I'm at this point in my life where I kind of have this intersect of these different things we're talking about right here, right? I'm, you know, we all, including myself, want to build this 
gigantic company, part of us, right? Um, I've been in flow state. I've not been in flow state. I've been mm. in flow state when I had a vision and I was connected to it and I was going to change the world and my results were infinite. It was almost scary. Then I was doing something that I wasn't really into, didn't connect to it. And I tried forcing myself and I hated it. Then there's the timeline thing, right? There's these, these amount of, you know, these days, months, years that you go into something to learn a particular skill um, like I have done. And now I just told you before we started this, I think that I'm kind of on this like professional sabbatical reevaluating what my next move is. Now, I say this because I was building my own business and I was building a training company around sales and influence, really about communication, but I just wasn't connected to it. Okay. So then I said, you know, I got to make a decision here, cut this off and just take a break and be with myself to figure out what it is that I want to do. So in that same process, I realized, you know what, I'm a really good guy that doesn't have to take all the risk and, and can really be a great number two to five and, and have a great ability to go in and just redefine a market, open it up, go to market, whatever, sell, communicate all that. So now I'm like, okay, well, I'm thinking about going back into a B2B position at a high level where I can do something very drastic with that company at a startup level, help them win really big, maybe get some equity, um, nice bonus incentive structure, make a nice salary, prove myself. And that's interesting to me. But part of me is like, oh, I'm still an entrepreneur, right? I'm only 35. So I'm, I'm in this sort of like this ebb and this flow word you're using right there of kind of like, what's the next move? And, you know, this deciding factor obviously has lots of inputs, right? I've got, you know, potential wife that I'm getting ready to, you know, settle down with family. And then it's like, well, I've just to use the old Gary V thing. I love what he said, because I bought into it five years ago, right after I got sober and started figuring my life out, which was eat shit for five years and then eat caviar for the rest of your life. Right. So mm. I chose to go eat shit to learn how to sell and communicate. And boy, I did it so good in Hollywood with celebrities and all these different areas. And now I have the skill set. I'm like, damn, man, that was a good run. So now I'm thinking about what's my next thing. Right. So mm. I'm sharing that with you in a way where somebody that's listening to this is kind of like, if I was just talking to you in a normal conversation, because that's what this is anyway, how would you suggest to me or point me in a direction in a world where there's millions of opportunities? And based on the information that I just gave you about how I'm looking at it, I want to kind of do a real simulation here where somebody can plug into that and use what I'm really going through and your experience and, and your high level ability, having been a successful entrepreneur in your teens to, to now being at 46, to say, okay, how can we unpack this to, to, to at least get in position to make a good decision for the next point in your life, right? And, and then continue to march forward. That was a lot, man, but I hope, I hope you, you caught that to some degree. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I understand. I mean, look, for, for any successful entrepreneur, yourself included, what's next is always a very big question. And somebody who has not been where you are may not understand what that's like. So in order to understand what's next, I think there's a couple steps that you can take. Step one is taking a look at how you want to design your life. I teach and train people all the time how to create predictable recurring revenue on the Amazon platform by creating these Amazon businesses so they can do what I do. Uh, I own a bunch of real estate. 
I've got a beautiful wife and kid. We travel all over the world. That's our thing. We go to far off and exotic places. We hang out on people's yachts. We rent Airbnbs. We travel. We explore. We don't do like the super you know, crazy that's the life. That's travel. the life we're working towards. That's the life we're working towards, by the way. Yeah. I, by the way, go ahead, man. I'm just telling you. So, so. Yeah. Yeah. Please. And so I think, you know, the first step is you got to figure out, you know, what kind of life you want. You know, like me and my kid, we fix up cars. He's seven years old. You know, we, I've got a collection of exotic cars, Porsches, those kinds of things. And, you know, on the weekends we go buy cars, we fix cars up. We, we, we live a really good life. We don't live like crazy. Like I did in the nineties, you know, that kind of lifestyle of crazy partying, whatever that would, that was then now I'm much more a family guy. And this is, it's the greatest thing in the world to watch my kid grow up. We eat really well. We, we like to cook most of the time, but we're, we're very comfortable in our lives. And I spend a good portion of my time exploring things that I'm interested in. Now, this, this may be key for you. We don't think oftentimes as entrepreneurs that things that are not making us money are part of what we like to call work. We tend to think, oh, that's something else. And you know, the thing that we do, if I sell something and get paid on the back end or paid on the front end, that's going to be money and that's my work. Not true. The interests that you have outside of your work allow you to open up a part of your brain, a part of your mind that otherwise would not be opened up. And that oftentimes leads to opportunities and clarity for you. <clears throat> What I understand from you is you're a young, dynamic guy. You're 35. You've had a lot of life that you've lived, and it looks like you've had a lot of fun too, and now you're kind of building that foundation for yourself. And what I would tell you is, is that there is a failing in entrepreneurial thinking that it's going to be one thing that we do that's going to be successful. After Herbal Ecstasy, I always had the splinter in my mind that where's the next fucking Herbal Ecstasy? After that, I invented most of the technology for digital vaporization. The entire vape industry grew around technology that I built. I wrote the first book on vaping. I built the first vapes ever, You know, patented them, all that stuff. There was no industry before we started our company. It was the first vape company to ever go public also, which is still a publicly traded company now. But I kept always looking for that one big hit. I kept looking for, hey, man, there's got to be another herbal ecstasy. And, you know, it's funny. I, I made a film with this guy, Vanilla Ice. Do you ever hear about him? Oh, yeah. um, and he, he was one of the top-selling rap artists of all time. I think only Eminem ever beat him. He sold 19 million copies of his album for that one song, Ice Ice Baby. And a fascinating guy, really interesting guy, nice guy. I got to meet him because we made a, a movie with him at a film production company sometime in the late 90s, and we, we cast him for a role. And what I realized about him, what that was very interesting for me, was that this guy had had that one hit, and not just him, a lot of guys like him, and they were just waiting for the phone to ring on the other end to say, hey, man, when can you get back in the studio and make another one? And those calls never came because it was just the one hit. Maybe he was looking for something else. And now that guy, he got a TV show. He's known for other things. He's rehabbing real estate. He's probably made more doing that than anything else he did in the past. So my point is this, that as entrepreneurs, we have this feeling that it's going to be one big hit, one big discovery. We're going to find that gold and that's going to be it. 
And it rarely works that way, especially today in the hustle economy, especially today in the outsourced economy. You need to have MSIs, bud. You need to have multiple streams of income and slowly build your wealth. Get rich slowly is what I teach people. So what you need to do is you need to make sure that you have, I don't know if you're already doing this, but you need to have some cash flow positive real estate, money that is being earned for you without you having to work for it. You need to have some are money. You, are, are you an apartment guy? Or are you a, like a, a mobile home guy? When you say that, what's your approach there? It doesn't matter. There's, doesn't matter. there's lots of ways. There's lots of systems okay. in real estate. You find a, a real estate mentor. I am not that guy. I have mentors who mentor me in purchasing of real estate, but that, I am not that guy. It's but, it's but but are you what which domain are you involved in? If you don't mind me asking, to share. Uh, oh, I buy I buy anything. Oh, you know, okay. as long as it's cash flow, I buy cash flow. So I buy okay. cash flow positive properties, um, all over the world actually now, and those properties. Someone lives in them, someone pays the bills, and I collect the check every month. And yep. in time, they, they build a portfolio. Yeah. So, for the people that are listening, because I think this is very real, and, and, and hold the thought where you were going with that. You said MSIs, multiple streets, you started with real estate. So, you were going to continue that thought beyond that. So, hold that part right there. And then let me, let me go here, which is um, if, if for the people that, that are looking to start investing in real estate, you know, they got to make money first. There's got to be an active income that allows yeah. them. Otherwise, they're they're going the boots on the ground. They're starting with somebody that might have the business in real estate already. That's going to say, "Hey, you learn how to go find the properties, and you know, you put in all the sweat equity, and and I'll give you a piece of the deal," which can happen. But otherwise, the other alternative is that that person has to have had made money in simplest forms to go out and be able to do that. Correct? No, you don't need no, money to buy right. real estate. That's one of the common misconceptions. Look, I. Um, was bored for a while. And I was buying houses on eBay in the winter in the Midwest, just buying them. I would buy them. Buy, I, I had an American Express, one of those black American Express cards. I uh, think it had no limit. And I could get, uh, I think I could get, yeah, it had no limit. So I would buy houses for 10, 15 grand uh, from the auction companies on eBay. I would wait till the till the winter was over to the summer because they they would they would they would load them up on eBay, list them in bulk. They would have snowy pictures of the houses. I'd hire some dude on Craigslist to take pictures of the houses when the snow melted. You have to wait a couple months and then list them back up on eBay, and I would get five times the value of those houses, all mm -hmm. paid on a credit card. I didn't spend a penny of my own money on that and made a ton of money doing that. I've also done deals where I've bought properties where I've bought the property got it into escrow, sold it before it's out of escrow and made the money. I've also gotten money, uh, uh, properties where I've had other people invest and share. Now, again, this is not my expertise. I, I only teach the concept that you need to be involved in cash sure. flow positive real estate, sure. but real estate is actually one of the easiest things to get involved with in no money. What you need is knowledge. And we yeah. talk about these three pillars and I know we're coming up on your time here. So, um, you know, I talk about these three pillars that a good friend of mine, Wayne Boss, who's this Australian multimillionaire genius investor, he, this guy comes into troubled companies, companies that are, you know, they, they, they've got one leg and it's a broken leg and he buys them, turns them into multimillion dollar companies and sells them for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases. And Wayne always taught me um, that you got to have three things, knowledge, courage, and action. Mm. Good, good for you to know too. Yeah. Knowledge. So you have a problem. You want to solve a problem. You got to get knowledge. We got to know how we solve this problem that we have. What's your next big move? Well, let's get some information. 
right? What's paying now? What's, what's the best place to be in to get that lifestyle? All that stuff. You can buy knowledge. You can rent knowledge. You can borrow knowledge. You can steal knowledge. You know, there's all kinds of ways to get knowledge. Once you have that knowledge, if you know, hey, man, if you do these things, that's going to take you to your highest path. That is the highest likelihood for you to achieve the things you want to achieve, Manny. It gives you courage, right? Balls, cojones. It makes you feel confident that you can now do the third part, take action. Without action, nothing else is possible. So knowledge, courage, action. It's a three-step system. We go into it in detail in the book, uh, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. And really with, with that formula, bud, you know, it, you can't fail, but you either have to take time getting knowledge, developing courage or taking action. Well, listen, man, I'm, I'm, I'm fully on board with you there. I, I think that, you know, cause, cause you alluded to the time, you know, like I said, you earlier, we have no agenda with these things and we could go on for days. I want to let you get back to your beautiful family and your beautiful day. Um, but, but with, with that thought, I, I do believe that, you know, see, this is the thing. I mean, some of us get stuck in this uh, analysis of, of, you know, is this the right thing to be jumping into? Um, and I think sometimes that keeps them from, from, from even making any decisions. So, you know, are you a fan of skills acquisition to, to complement some of that stuff? Because knowledge is important. Courage, courage is, is sort of the virtue that kind of comes through us and flows, um, you know, almost at a, at a soul level. And then action obviously is the going and doing it. The skill part, are you like no skill, just do it first then skill gets developed or develop skill first to skill develop through that active part. So I'm kind of last thoughts there before we have you share, you know, where we can go get some more cool info on billion right there. And some more on the Amazon mastery and all that fun stuff, but just that last final thought. And then I'll have one more question for you before we wrap up. And then we'll have to do this again sometime again. And hopefully you've had fun here, but I mean, this is, this is, yeah, you know. totally. Fun. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let me, let me cool. answer that for you. I, I kind of yeah. know where you're going with this. Don't fucking overthink stuff. You, especially you have a tendency to overthink. I can, I can tell it just by talking to you for the amount of time that we did. Don't fucking overthink stuff. You have, you have a gut, you have an intuition. Doesn't mean that you don't need to verify it. One of my old teachers used to always say, play your hunch. It'll have your lunch. So mm. you gotta be, you gotta be cognizant of that. You can't just be like, oh, I've got a great hunch. I'm betting all on red. No, you've got to verify. You've got to use good information. And that's where your hunch comes in, where you take all the information, all the, all the science that you have, that you've learned, all the tools that you've developed over this time, all the things that have worked for you and the things that have not worked for you. When you put all those together, and then you've got a feeling that you need to go left instead of going right, that's when you make that move. But don't fucking overthink it. You overthink sure. stuff too much. And most entrepreneurs are like that. I'm like that too. You cannot overthink things. Sometimes action is better than perfection. Sure. And, and a lot of us have the problem of perfection by paralysis. It comes out of insecurity. We tend to think, hey, man, the thing I'm going to do is going to be better than all the other things out there. So I, no, no, the way I do it is perfect. So I have to do it this way. It's fucking bullshit because the way that you do it needs to be flawed. You need to go out there and seek failure. This is what I teach people. This is what I teach people in my Amazon course. Go out there with some money to burn just a little bit, doesn't have to make you uncomfortable, or maybe it just makes you a little uncomfortable and plan on fucking failing. 
go out there and decide, you know what, I'm going to be smart about this. I'm going to do everything that I'm taught. I'm going to seek counsel. I'm going to join a mastermind. I'm going to read books. And then I'm going to deploy this money. I'm going to start a business and then I'm okay failing. So I'm going to go out there and seek failure. Why? Because winning isn't a process of throwing your chips on the table and having the wheel land or the ball land on your color. It's a process of carefully picking out what your numbers may be, failing, correcting it, failing, correcting it, tweaking, changing course until you get something that's replicatable and then cutting and pacing and constantly being aware that you can change course, constantly being aware that you are in a changing environment. The ocean doesn't stand still. The ocean is constantly changing. There might be winds, there might be a storm. You don't know what's going to go on. So you need the skill of navigation. That's what's going to take you where you're going. That's damn good right there. See, that, that's, that's just like the mic drop, the skill of navigation to wrap that up is pretty impressive right there. Okay. All right. So, so for, for, for all intents and purposes, you know, keeping you for the whole night, um, where, can we, where can we go find out some more about this book and Amazon Mastery and, and Shaheen and all that grandiose, fantastic stuff you've done, you know, get more of the story, products that you offer, all that neat stuff. Yeah. Cool, Manny. Thank you for asking. So the book is available now on Amazon. The Audible book launches next week for anybody who's interested in that. But the uh, book, the hardcover, the ebook is available on uh, Amazon and Kindle. So check it out. It's called Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. For anybody who wants, the first chapter is free on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever podcasts are found. We also have a podcast called Hack and Grow Rich which you guys are welcome to join us on. It's a great community. It's grown up to about 65,000 subscribers now. Make sure to like and comment there before. Is there anything we said that you didn't like or that you liked? If you're watching this on the channel, make sure to like it um, and subscribe. And then also, you know, for your listeners and viewers, Manny, if you guys mentioned that you heard it on Manny's podcast and you're interested in learning how to become an Amazon seller or creating an Amazon business, even if you don't have a product idea, we teach you how to find one. We teach you how to make money. I've got a one-hour course, Manny. It's normally 200 bucks for your listeners. I'm going to offer that up for free. As long as you mention the code Manny, go to fbasellercourse.com or go to shaheenshan.com. FBA Seller Course is F-B-A-S-E-L-L-E-R c-o-u-r-s-e.com um, or you can just email me directly my direct email is d-a-r-k-z-e-s-s at gmail.com i do answer 100 of emails i also get to email zero every day i never oh. leave my inbox full yeah and that can be a topic of another podcast how you do that but <laughs> i do answer every email so if you want to reach out to me have a strategy call uh, to create a business that creates recurring revenue. I'm happy to do that for your listeners. And Manny, if there's any way I can bring value to you ever, please feel free to, to reach out to me anytime. Of course, man. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I admire how you've done it, sort of the journey that got you there, the continuation of it, certainly the, the, the charm and charisma that you bring to the tooling of the messaging, how it can work for other people. I think that's invaluable. And, you know, your team, 
bringing this together here has been such a fantastic, you know, these little snippets in life, these you know, micro connections that become something bigger, more spectacular. I, I always fancied that and think it's, think it's a big deal. So, you know, everybody that's listening, if you've been a part of this for a while, you know how I roll here and what I do. So please go you know, head over to Shaheen's area and get into his arena. Let him teach you, train you and take you to that next level. Cause there's always something you can gain and benefit from, from information, knowledge, like you said, courage, action, we can keep going. But um, last things last, man, I got to ask you, cause this is obviously the, 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 the breadth of everything I do here. What does always on the grow mean to you? Always on the grow. I like that. Um, look, I think Alan Watts talked a lot about this. In life, you can move forwards, you can move backwards, both are forms of motion. But if you are not moving, you're dying. Hmm. You got to constantly be moving. You got to be constantly changing. And with that comes growth. Growth is incredibly important. It's part of becoming a human being who's self-realized, who's reflective, who doesn't feel like they are a victim to circumstances, but rather present in a film of their own making. Amen, man. That's beautiful, brother. Well, I appreciate you, man. This has been great. Put her there, the old fist pump virtually right there. And um, hey, man, a sign off right there with the old salute to you, champ. And then um, we'll catch you on the next one, brother. Appreciate you, my man. Thanks, buddy.